Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Alrighty, well, um, I guess... <sighs> what was that? What? You went, ah! Oh, sorry, it's the bubbles. I'm just, it's the... <laughs> Uh, I'm drinking Martinelli's straight out of the bottle. Fucking um, wine. It's, it's making me really burpy. <laughs> so just just watch out. <laughs> it's also making me aspirate, apparently, like a like a Coca-Cola ad. Oh, I love you. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week, we are talking about Timon of Athens, not to be confused with Timon of Athens, who is a meerkat. Timon of Athens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> with special guest Patrick Aaron Harris. Yay! Welcome back, Patrick. Thank you. You might remember Patrick from our Merchant of Venice 101 episode all the way back in season one. God, that was a lifetime ago. Mm -hmm. um, we are thrilled to have him back with us today to talk about this weird and wonderful and shitty play. Uh, Patrick is a second year PhD student at the University of Texas where he works on some cool stuff that he's definitely going to jump in and remind me what it is right now. Yeah, I um, am still, you know, killing that PhD game, um, working on Shakespeare and Shakespeare adaptations. So that's that's my entire life. I love it. I love it. Nice. It could be a worse life, I suppose, than just focusing on It really it really really yeah. could. <laughs> you know. All right. So, every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Michelangelo Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. That is introductory stuff, which is everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get along the way, uh, you know, like our opinions. And this week, Patrick's opinions. Yes. Yay. Yay. Oh, my God. All right. I'm so fucking It is thrilled. time. <laughs> it is time for the rhetorical device of the week. Because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy rhetorical device flashcards. Okay, so we are down to just some... I'm going to name some colors, Patrick, and then... You're not going to say the next part of that? Oh, yeah, sorry, I just jumped right in. Sorry. I was so focused on, like, how small the pile was. Okay. Uh, for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, Rocky. Rocky. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I've got four. I'm just going to name some colors. 
Patrick, you tell me a color and then we'll we'll just go from there because this stack is so thin. Okay, we've got purple, orange, blue, or red. I'm going to rep some UT pride and go with orange. Orange. Okay, we have four options for orange. Give me a number between one and four. Three. Excellent. <laughs> Aha! Aha! Ooh, the rhetorical device this week is acrologia. Ooh! Yay! Acrologia. Right. A-C-Y-R-O-L-O-G-I-A. Acrologia. Yeah. It's a form I of know. substitution. Pop quiz. Does anybody know what it means? Well, I know I've I used it. I think. Uh, Patrick, I would, what? Patrick, what yeah, is it? I mean, our our resident a rhetorician. I might be, you know, getting my rhetorical devices confused. That happens sometimes. But I'm pretty sure this is the one where you substitute a word for a different word that sounds like the word you mean to use, but means something completely different. Yes, you are exactly right. Ding, 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 ding. It is the use of a word which sounds similar to the proper term, but has a vastly different meaning, later known as a malapropism. So the example is the classic Dogberry from Much Ado About Nothing. He says, oh, villain, thou wilt be condemned into everlasting redemption for this. Fantastic. Well done. Silly old Dogberry. Yeah. So that is acrologia for you. Malapropisms. Uh, I think called Malaprop because of a Mrs. Malaprop in a restoration play, right? Yeah. Who was so popular and who used this device so very often. Yep. It was named after her eventually. It might not be a restoration play, but it's something. Post it's somebody's this, yeah. character in somebody's play. Yeah. It's post yeah. Uh, our time period, but pre-modern. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a either, solid 300 years. That's great. It's either Restoration <laughs> or Victorian, but I, I'm not sure which. That is a long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is all of the time different. between then and now. <laughs> yeah, that's all. pretty much. Alrighty, moving on. It's now time for a Burbage Break with Master Master Harris. Thanks. So this week for the Burbage Break, I wanted to tackle the concepts, ideas, values of charity and hospitality, because I think they are important to this play and to many of Shakespeare's other plays. And I think especially for this one, they can actually help us read the play against its own critical history, which has often treated the play as a critique of wealth and credit-based capitalism. Um, So I actually think I want to start with that and work our way through some of the things. So in case nobody knows this, um, Karl Marx, that very widely noted economist and political theorist, um, on two separate occasions refers to uh, one of Timon's speeches uh, in Act 4, Scene 3, in which Timon calls gold the common whore of mankind. And following Marx, many scholars have also noted the class dynamics between the Athenian nobility, the merchants, and the artisans. And in making these critiques, scholars will often point out that wealth or the appearance of wealth confers a great deal of social capital, not just the material kind of capital, that turns lords like Timon into trendsetters whose purchases dictate or at least predict which merchants will be most successful. And so the merchants and artisans are made susceptible to various kinds of exploitation by the extremely wealthy. And at the same time, those same lords fall prey to that system by making luxury purchases that connote wealth or status, 
usually relying on credit, so borrowing money from other lords or simply relying on their good reputations uh, to get the goods now and render payment later. And so you might argue that Tymon ends up – spoilers – Hyman ends up poor and ostracized uh, because of his efforts to hoard money and display wealth, which render him too deeply indebted and too great a credit risk to keep among uh, moneyed society. But I want to give Hyman the benefit of the doubt because he deserves it uh, and argue that as irresponsible as he is, his spending is not about displaying wealth for the sake of securing and maintaining status but rather to share his wealth out of an earnest sense of charity and generosity. And without giving way too many more spoilers, um, very early on in the play, we see Tymon paying and patronizing merchants and artisans, uh, raising a lowborn man's fortunes, and paying someone's bail. And perhaps most importantly, Tymon opens his home to the Athenian lords. And he does this because he thinks very highly of them more highly, he says, than they in modesty could speak in their own behalf. And he naively believes that they will be as charitable and hospitable with him and with each other in the future as he has been with them. And so, in fact, Timon is taking an anti-capitalist stance against amassing personal wealth and is trying to establish the conditions for shared communal wealth that's rooted in charity and reciprocity. He is, of course, wrong in his estimation of his friends. And I think that it is his disillusionment that leads to his misanthropy and self-exile because his friends exploit him and so far transgress the norms of hospitality. Timon loses all faith in humanity and curses money as that thing that makes people duplicitous and self-serving. But Timon is not the only character in Shakespeare's works to have his hospitality betrayed like this. And I don't want to stray too far away from this play, but I would point devoted Hurley-Burley Shakespeare show fans to read The Rape of Lucrece, which is Shakespeare's narrative poem about a married Roman, Roman noblewoman uh, who opens her home to the Roman prince, prince Tarquin. Tarquin is oddly aroused by Lucrece's devotion to her husband. And so once everyone is asleep, he sneaks through the house to her room and assaults her. He violates her body and the inherent pact between guest and host to respect and maintain the sanctity and security of the home. Shakespeare recalls this notion in Macbeth, where Macbeth has to remind himself that he is responsible for protecting his guests and therefore should not kill Duncan. Of course, he does, appropriating, quote, Tarquin's ravishing strides to make his way stealthily through the castle. And again, in Cymbeline, when Giacomo commits his own act of violation against Imogen, who has extended her hospitality, Giacomo mimics Tarquin softly pressing the rushes. So obviously, Timon's exploitation and victimization are of a different kind and magnitude. Not bodily, but financial. Not personal, but social. Not private, but public. And ultimately, it stems from the Lord's selfish indulgences and their willingness to create scarcity, precarity, and harm, even for an individual who has only ever shown them kindness and generosity. The end. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Harris. Um, okay, so we have a game this week that is coming before the summary, so you know what that means. It means one of us is going to fail at Shakespeare, and that's going to be Aubrey. Yep, it's going to be me. I'm going to fail. All right. Go hard. 
Um, do we time this? Do you go have a minute? Is that how we, we do play time this game? it? Yeah, I get a minute. Okay, okay, so the rules of this game are that I get a minute to try to summarize what I think is the plot of Time of Athens. It'll probably be grossly wrong, uh, and then we go and do the real summary. I am ready when you are. Here we go. Okay. So there's this guy, Timon. He's spending more than he earns. I don't know exactly how he earns money. And uh, he invites some guys to his house. There are some, like, hookers. Uh, and then his, like, sad poet friend. Uh, shut up, cat. <laughs> Um, his sad poet friend like laments and talks to the audience about how sad Timon is and like, oh, he doesn't even know what's coming. And then Timon like flips a table and goes and lives in a cave. He may or may not get naked. Um, and then he dies from misanthropy. I don't exactly know how he dies. He but he dies for sure. From misanthropy. Yeah, good. Cool. <laughs> Forty five seconds of nonsense. That was great. That's the plate, right? It's yeah. perfect. Hookers. <laughs> there are definitely hookers, well, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a little reductive. Uh I frankly sure. I I don't think I put them in the summary for act one i think i glossed over them because i decided they were oh. important they show up later yeah, they just yeah they do a dance and then they come in with they do a dance it's yeah. a mask there's, there's Maybe a whole i remember them as hookers because the last production i saw because they were dressed in 2016 like well no the last production i saw in 2016 was at osf and it was that weird oh. like brechtian production sure. and they weren't even real people they were like dummies they were like stuffed dummy puppet things that the actors did really lewd things to Ooh. That's um, it was horrible i mean you know it was the whole like it really was brechtian in that you know it was supposed to alienate and boy did it ever that was alienating <laughs> so that's all, all right. i remember you're welcome Okay, so we're moving on. Now that I've thoroughly failed spectacularly at Shakespeare, uh, it's time for the five-word unhelpful titles. Um, and I struggled with this one, but I finally landed on Timon's always doing the most. Mine is homie in cave gets naked. Uh, yeah. Patrick, as always, is going to win this. So <laughs> I have many, many ideas. Should I just share all of them? Please, Please do, because they're all great. The people need to know. Yeah. yeah. So, the first one is a, a quote from Rihanna. Bitch better have my money. It's so good. Accurate. This yeah. is kind of accurate. The second is similar, but is a bit of a throwback, so for any 90s kids out there, here's some Destiny's Child coming your way, and it's, can you pay my bills? <laughs> no, Timon can't. No. Nope. <laughs> he can't at no. all. Um, nope. And the last one uh, is not five words. It is four words. And it is, look, Ma, no pants. The end. <laughs> all right. Should we do the DP? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a reason I say that every week because of the entendre. <laughs> yeah okay it's time for the dramatis personae <clears throat> but only the really important ones 
Yeah, so there's Tymon. He's a rich dude who lives in Athens. Then there's Athens. No, I'm just kidding. It was my brilliant joke. Thanks for not laughing at it, either of you. <laughs> um, Do you want to explain it? It might get funnier. <laughs> okay, because the play is called Timon of Athens. Yeah. And so so we start with the character of Timon, and then I thought it would be really funny if the next character was Athens, because it's in the title. So I just did that joke just then that, like, we're going to do the DP, and we're going to start with, <laughs> with Timon, and then Athens. Yeah, still not funny. I Sorry. hate you both. You both <laughs> laughed at that when I did it at your kitchen table in December. Both of you laughed at it. Both of you. I believe you. I'm sorry. Okay. So after Timon, right. we have Alcibiades, who is a talented soldier and a friend of Timon. We also have Apamantus, a uh, cynical homie who hates the world. He's the poet guy, yeah? Mm, no. The poet is There's the no poet. poet, is there? There is a poet. Oh, there is a poet. I'm just conflating poet. him, that poet, with Apamantus, and yeah. that's not who that no. is. No. Got it. Apamantus is a cynical homie who hates the world. Yeah. Yeah. Flavius, Timon's loyal and more fiscally responsible servant. Oh, and then Ventidius, who is Timon's other friend. And then various and sundry senators, tradesmen, messengers, etc., who populate Athens. All righty. Why is this place so goddamn popular? <laughs> it's not. It's so not. But it's got some good shit. Patrick will tell us what that good shit is. Yes. Yeah, it's really not popular and it's kind of sad. Um, but some of the good shit, uh, it's decadent. Especially the first half of the play when Timon still has money. Because he just buys so much stuff. So much stuff. Clothes, jewelry, <laughs> hookers. Um... <laughs> Women, so, I think, is is what they like to be called. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's it's a very indulgent uh play. Uh, that makes it juicy. Uh then 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 there's uh then there's nudity. Yep. Which is complicated. Yep. Because the nudity is not the necessarily the fun, sexy kind of nudity. Nope. But it is definitely um, provocative. Um, it is not a thing that one forgets, ever. The, nope. <laughs> no, you can't. Screwed to your memory. <laughs> then there's there are there are whores slash hookers slash prostitutes slash female sex workers. They're in there. Um, yeah, they are. And. That's just, that's not a thing that Shakespeare does a lot of. Mm. Like, actual prostitutes, not a thing that shows up in a lot of Shakespeare plays. So that's just interesting. Thematically, there's a, there's a lot of reversals of fortune. And we'll, we can talk more about that in the summary. But it happens to a lot of characters. And, and as a part of that, you also get a shift from the inner city of Athens to, like, the Athenian wilderness, Right, this is not the quaint Athenian forest of a Midsummer Night's Dream. It is, um, it's sad and arid and barren and difficult to live in. Which this is might like, be... it's like the HBO reboot of Athens, gritty and dark. It's gritty and yeah, mm. that's exactly it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With nudity, with nudity, and yeah, and I'm pretty sure at some point, time it makes a meal out of rocks. 
Yep. <laughs> and then you get Tymon, who ends up being the misanthrope because he, he like because people are terrible, he now hates all things. There are no good things in the world now. So that's an, um, a fun character exploration in this play. And then just on the level of relatability, there are some relatable money problems happening all over this play. And not even just to Tymon. Like, there's a lot of characters who are just, like, short-term, hard up for cash, need a little cushion to get through to next payday or whatever. And I, I feel like we've all been there. So those are some of the, the great things about this play and the reasons why it should be more popular, despite the fact that it is not. Uh, it was having a yeah. moment for a bit a couple years ago. Um, yeah, right around the financial the great collapse. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah. Wrote about it in my thesis. It was yeah. a footnote. I do like to imagine that Shakespeare like handed the pages of this play to his company and everybody just kind of they were like, uh, Will, do you do you have something you want to say to us? Like, <laughs> do we need to have just, a, a talk? Yeah, like, do we need to have a company meeting? Because are you going through some stuff, buddy? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's happening? Because yeah. <laughs> you're right, it is it is sort of off tone for Shakespeare, like with the horrors and the misanthropy it's because and because the... of Middleton. I mean, sure. Middletonian intervention might I mean, be yeah. a thing as well because yep. he was a big old cynic but yeah it's like it's sort of aberrant in in the Shakespeare canon in that way so I just wonder if it like gave everyone pause in the King's Men <laughs> it's summary time okay so we will now summarize time in of Athens for you in a segment that this week we're calling Hakuna Ma Summary <laughs> <laughs> See, that's funny because this play is called Oh my Time god, <laughs> don't ruin it by explaining it <laughs> <laughs> Don't It's so good already <laughs> Yay! Okay. I did a good one That good one's one. excellent You did good, you did good Is this timer ready? Okay, so Patrick, whenever you're ready, take it away Act one some tradesmen are waiting around to suck up to the super generous Timon. In front of the Athenian senators, Timon pays some bail money for his friend, Ventidius, gives a servant a fortune so he can marry the daughter of a rich man, and accepts a bunch of gifts. Cynical Appomantus warns Timon that people only love him for what he can offer them. Alcibiades arrives for a feast. Ventidius arrives as well and tries to pay back Timon's generosity, but Timon won't let him. Athamantis jacquises it up in the corner. Timon praises friendship and tells Flavius to distribute jewels. Flavius tries to warn Timon that his generosity is bankrupting him, but Timon doesn't listen. Nice. Act two. One of the senators knows that Timon is deeply in debt, but still spending extravagantly, and sends a servant to collect the money Timon owes to him before it's too late. Flavius is overwhelmed by everyone presenting bills to him. Timon doesn't understand why everyone's trying so desperately to collect all of a sudden. Like, what? Timon gets angry that Flavius didn't tell him he was broke. He sends Flavius to ask for some help from his friends, which is definitely not going to go well. But Timon is full-on ostriching this situation. Hashtag Anthemeria. <laughs> News spreads that Timon is broke. His friends refuse to believe it and refuse to help him out because they suck. Timon invites his lousy friends to a feast where he serves them water and rocks 
curses at them, and throws the dishes at them. Alcibiades tries to get the Senate to spare the life of one of his soldiers who committed a crime in the heat of battle, but the senators deny his request and also banish Alcibiades from Athens entirely. In Act 4, Timon leaves Athens, cursing the city and its residents. Flavius resolves to follow Timon and serve him for as long as he's able. Timon takes up residence in a cave, digging for roots to eat. Instead, he finds gold. Alcibiades passes through with his mistresses and his army and tries to help Timon, but Timon insults him and tells him to take the gold he found. The mistresses want the gold, and Timon calls them disease-ridden whores. It's pretty lame. They all leave. Apimantus arrives next and calls Timon a copycat for turning cynical and eschewing society because hashtag Apimantus is a cynical douche. Uh, Apimantus then leaves, vowing to tell everyone that Timon found gold so that they will all flock to the forest and bother him. Flavius arrives, but Timon sends him away, saying that he wants to be alone. In Act 5, all the Athenians show up to the cave trying to get Timon's gold. Assholes. Timon gives them the gold, but also beats them. Timon refuses uh, the senator's plea to return to Athens to protect the city from Alcibiades. Timon dies alone in his cave. Alcibiades conquers Athens, learns that Timon has died, and is sad. The end. It was three minutes. We're fucking yeah. killing it. So it wasn't that far off. He he doesn't exactly flip a table, but he like throws some I mean, dishes and stuff. In some productions, yeah. he literally flips a table. You know what? I think I remember Renee Thornton doing that. Did he flip a table? Uh, was that right before he flipped everybody off? The flipping that... off comes in the cave. I don't. Oh, right, I okay. don't remember him flipping a table, but I I do know that he threw the water everywhere. Oh, okay, maybe that was it. Yeah. Well, in my head, it definitely solidified as somebody flipping a damn. When table, we have so. him on as a guest for our two hundred one episode, we can ask him someday. Someday, just putting it out there in the universe. Hey, yeah. Renee, come and be on our show. Moving on. Yeah, Patrick. Tell us, tell us some cool stuff about the text, Patrick. Take it away. Yeah, there are so many things. As we've kind of already mentioned, uh, there is a huge authorship question surrounding this play. Um, the question being, is this play collaborative? Is this a, some revised version of the play? Or is this play, as we know it, unfinished? And it's seems that the question stems entirely from the fact that this play is weird um, compared to the way that all of Shakespeare's other plays are written and tend to resolve themselves, even the tragedies. This one is unique in its structure. And there have been questions about if that is the reflection of collaborative authorship or some posthumous revision by some other early modern playwright or if the play is just not done. For what it's worth, um, the Arden edition opens with the declarative statement that it's Middleton and Shakespeare together. Yeah, that seems to be the provision. Uh, and, you know, I'm perfectly happy with that. I will take a Middleton contribution any day. Any day. He's a great playwright. Um, but it is an interesting um, conundrum, I guess, that we sometimes find ourselves in as Shakespeare scholars. Um, when we come across things that seem uncharacteristic about a play that we know that Shakespeare had at least some hand in, if not the dominant hand, to try to figure out why it is that it's so strange. This authorship 
question is always interesting when dealing with Shakespeare, I think in particular, because we feel like we have such a good sense of who he is as a playwright. So when we come across things that seem uncharacteristic in plays, it often tends to raise the authorship question. And in this play, the debate about authorship has else had a hand in writing it, and even who it was, but more about at what point that person became involved, if it was collaborative from the beginning or if it was some kind of posthumous revision. Yeah, so Timon at Athens, fun fact, I found this out while prepping to be here with y'all. The earliest recorded performance of this play is actually not of this play. Um, it is of a 1678 adaptation of the play, which was Thomas Shadwell's The History of Timon of Athens, comma, The Man-Hater. Such a good title. It is the best title. Um, the Man-Hater. The Man-Hater. I, I dig it. I have, I have no idea what happens. I want to read it. It sounds excellent. But the earliest recorded performance of the Shakespeare text is from 1751 in Dublin at the Smock Alley Theater, um, or a Smock Alley Theater, because there have been a lot of them in the last 300 years. But yeah, I think that's that's weird. But as you know, as I mentioned, I love Shakespeare adaptations. And I do think it's kind of cool that so many of Shakespeare's plays um, got so frequently and widely adapted, especially during the latter 17th century and during the 18th century. Um, and so it's weird that, but it's weird and cool that so many of his plays actually have a longer performance tradition as adaptations than of the original text. There were air quotes around that. But yeah, I think that's just a really cool thing about this play. From the production side of things, uh, we kind of already mentioned this too, but this is a great play for times of economic distress. As an example, uh, the Public Theater in 2011 revived a Broadway production that it did in 1993 um, and staged it as, quote, a play for the Great Recession. And as I was thinking about it earlier today, I was struck by the idea that our the kind of economic strain that a lot of people are feeling because of the U.S. government shutdown is likely to inspire some pretty similar feelings about money and economy. And I would not be terribly surprised if in the next year we saw some productions of Time and of Athens from some major theaters because I feel like some people are really feeling the strain and need some kind of catharsis for that. For real, for real. Yeah, definitely. So shall we talk about the nudity thing? Or Patrick, do you have more things to say about production perspective? Or I mean, that's kind of the thing. I just, I don't know how to broach that subject. The nudity? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I mean, like, he gets naked. That yeah. Happens. Let's find it in the text. It happens in what? Act four? Act four, scene yeah. one. Act four, scene one. You know who could tell us all about it? is Adrian Johnson. I know, because she wrote a, uh, a fucking she, thesis about it. Yeah, she wrote a whole thesis about it and then had an actor perform it at her thesis presentation and get naked and, like, do okay. the thing. And we all saw his penis. Yes, we did. And we'll never forget. Nope, we sure won't. Nope. <laughs> That's the thing about nudity on stage. It tends to stay with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so he's got this 
super long speech. Uh, well, I guess it's not super long. It's 40 lines. Uh, I have a... Uh, oh, there it is. I'm using the Norton Second Edition. Yeah, he's got a stage direction. says he tears off his clothing. Oh, interesting. There is not that in the Norton. The Norton does not have that stage direction. Uh, sorry, the Arden. The Arden does not have that stage direction. Um, Weird. Uh, but it's it's like right around, was, I've got line 33. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So the the um, the relevant text is... Doop-a-doop-a-doo, so, no, no, okay, itches, blains, so all the Athenian bosoms and their crop be general leprosy, breath, infect breath, that their society as their friendship may be merely poison. Nothing I'll bear from thee but nakedness, thou detestable town. Take thou that too with multiplying bands, time and will to the woods, where he shall find the unkindest beast more kinder than mankind, etc. Nakedness! Mm-hmm. Nakedness. Yeah. So, I mean, basically what Adrian argued in her thesis is that that's a choice that you can make to have your actor get totally naked. It is in line with the text. Yeah. You could do it. She argued you should. Yeah. Uh, You don't have to. But it is a very strong choice. It's like, it. to me, it feels like um, the same level as um, the Lear nakedness. Yeah. You know, because they're yeah. both sort of like old dudes. Invulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, stripping. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. That was a productive conversation. Um, I mean, in short, is there anything else people, to say about it other than like, not it's really, in the text? No. And here it is. Let's no. point it out. Just that, you know, if you're doing a production of Timon, it's a thing you need to think about. Yeah. Like how naked... Or all the way naked, do you want your time in to get right. in that moment? In the yes. the OSF time in, did he get naked? He, uh, I think it was just to the waist. Yeah. Yeah. It's Renee it was Anthony not. Healed. Ooh, Anthony Healed. Yeah. Ooh. It was Anthony Healed was time in, in that production. Yeah, and there were a whole bunch of things that were real alienating and stark about the, about that um, particular production, but not Anthony Heald's half-naked body. <laughs> Although he did, like, once he was at least topless, and I think he was in, like, sort of, like, raggy sure. sort of pants or maybe it was just boxer shorts. I mean, but they were, like, yeah. thin and dirty, you know, because he'd been rolling around in a cave. In a cave. Um, but he was that way the rest of the time. And let me tell you, it was chilly in that indoor theater sure so um i felt i felt bad for him because really he was just running around on stage nearly naked Uh, um looking cold and vulnerable which is exactly i suppose the the effect that they wanted well in um um, yeah in the 2014 is that when that was the production with renee that we all saw together maybe we didn't all see it yeah it was either 14 or 15 but yeah it was our first year yeah. It was yeah, the so, Ren season, right? So, yeah, 2014. Yeah. Renee got down to a white tank top undershirt and shorts um, and stayed that way, I think, for the rest of the, the production. Yeah. Uh, and they were also sort of grungy and dirty. Yeah. It was so good. It was so good. Oh, that production was so good. It was really good. Man. 
that was the one that really turned me around on Timon, frankly. Like, I had seen a, a real bad one, again, like, in the haze of the 90s, when apparently I saw a bunch of shitty stuff that I barely remember. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that was the only other one I'd seen. And then I saw the, the Ren season at ASC, and then I realized, I was like, oh, like, maybe this is one of those plays that just maybe needs to be done in a bare stage environment. I don't know. Just something about that and about the staging conditions at the Blackfriars felt really right for that play in, in a way that, that, you know, a play like Midsummer, you could throw anything at Midsummer and it is usually fine. Like that text really is resilient and it holds up, but I'm not sure that Timon does no. in the same way. I'm really not sure that it does, but everything was so clear when you stripped away, forgive the pun, don't forgive the pun. It was a good one. But, when, like, but it was, it just, it just was like, it was so clear, you know? You're welcome. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, I think this is a really fantastic play, frankly. I think it's weird and I think it's wonderful and I think it's good and I think it's, it's strange and I think it's unfinished. That's my take on it is that this is not a finished play because it, it doesn't end. It just stops. Spoiler alert. It's Love's Labor's one. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> oh my Nerd. God. If I just solved it. I solved Love's the mystery. Love's Labor's one. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Oh, but what if it was, oh my God, now I want to stage those two in rep. Like, Timon is the answer to Love's Labors, and all of the whores are the women from Love's Labors. Uh, no. Oh, my I God. Mean, but yes. But right? Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, one final thought. Just about, because about, I wanted to respond to, for real, about what you're saying about Timon being a, even though it's unfinished, being a good play. Like, every time since, uh, every time that I've seen Timon, I always hear people in the audience with me going, hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And like, just like affirming there are certain lines in, in that text in the play that just sort of pop out at you that feel so relevant, you know, and especially like Patrick, what you were talking about, like the money stuff mm -hmm. and like really relatable money problems. Like every time, you know, those lines are th like thrown out there. I've, I always hear people go, mm, 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 you know, like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, yep. I feel that. It's like, like they're and in everybody, church. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like everybody is feeling that. Even in that weird one at the at, at OSF with the Brechtian puppets, it was like, even then, people were like hearing those words and going, yeah, I feel that. That's what I like about this play, is that it feels so relevant all the time. Okay, now we can move on. Sorry. Okay. Let's, I don't think let's, we have any corrections. No, let's gossip. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> so. The, the big one first. Strap in, babies. Uh, yeah, so sorry. today as we're recording, it's, I don't know, what is today? Today is the 20th of January. So yesterday, uh, Mark Rylance, you remember Jesus Mark Christ. Rylance, famous, famous Oxfordian, uh, or Baconian, I suppose the case is. Anyway, he, um, he made the news, because... Mark Rylance wrote a foreword to a forthcoming book about Francis Bacon is actually the author 
of Shakespeare. So here's here's the deal. There's a book coming out that makes some some claims. It's by Barry Clark, a person I've never heard of. And it's called Francis Bacon's Contribution to Shakespeare, colon, A New Attribution Method, uh, which argues essentially that Francis Bacon contributed really heavily to The Tempest and Love's Labor's Lost and some of the other plays. Through the methodology is, I think, a little suspicious. Vicious. He did some, some Ebo. He went on Ebo. Yeah. He went on Ebo and did Control F. Yeah. So <laughs> Ebo uh, is early English books online. Um, it is a super valuable database for people who are early modernists. Um, and it's it is searchable. Uh, and he did some some phrase searching uh, and determined through this method um, that there are rare matches for a couple of, of phrases uh, that happen in the Tempest. And anyway, <laughs> it's like a thing. So, so whatever, we're not here to rehash the authorship debate. Cause that's you, you know what side we come down on. But so Mark Rylance in his forward to this book says, Time will celebrate those who were not daunted by the fear-mongering of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and its supporters in the media and academia. The Stratfordian response to our question about the authorship has usually been to lampoon the questioner. They can't answer the question or make it go away, so they try to make us go away. And he, you know, continues from there. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me while I go and pick up my eyes. They rolled out of my head and across the floor. Fucking right? (laughs) So, anyway, uh, Mark Rylance is saying some stupid shit again. He's been quoted many, many times saying this same type of thing. Like, oh, stop victimizing me because my ideas are wrong. You know what, Mark Rylance? No one is attacking you. The other salient thing that he said I, when I read this article yeah. was he was trying to say, everyone calls me a classist because I say blah, blah, blah about Shakespeare not being able to write because he never went to school and yet he uses big words like he went to school. And, and then so he's he's trying to say that he's not classist and being elitist about it but like bringing up someone's level of education is another kind of elitism it's It's, not about how much money you've got absolutely yeah yeah because education kind of goes like higher education goes hand in hand with Mm -hmm. money Mm -hmm. duh yeah so yes you are being elitist when you say that shit you dummy yep yep god i just like i liked go ahead patrick i liked the fear-mongering take (laughs) right Fear-mongering. How dare we in the Shakespeare sorry. industrial complex monger our fear? I'm sorry. Are the are the Shakespeare birthplace trust people like sending him threatening letters? Are they right. sending him heads in boxes? Fucking like what are they doing? Paul Edmondson is over there being like, Mark Rylance, I'm gonna send you uh, sending fingernails clippings. Magazine yeah, right? letters cut out into mean little notes. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> the Shakespeare Birthplace oh. Press does not fear monger. Oh my oh. God. Yeah. Very uh, nice people. 
They're lovely people. Oh, Jesus. Poor widow baby Mark Wylance. I know. He's getting picked on, you guys. Yeah. So, it's not like he has walls of money he can hide behind. Oh, no, no. Anyway. <sighs> anyway. So that's that's the first thing. Uh, what's next? Yeah. On to more pleasant things. Patrick, what are you working on right now? What are you what are you doing? Oh, everything. Um, so our semester has yet to begin. What? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I've been in school for two it's, weeks. It starts on <laughs> It starts on Tuesday. What? Um Yeah. I don't know. I don't set these schedules. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I am currently working on class prep, getting ready to teach for the whole semester. Um, and also exciting slash terrifying news. I am getting ready to do that. Those exams. Um, yes, that's happening. baby. Yes, you are. You're going to fucking kill it. Um, I'm going to do something. Okay, cool. So what are you, what are you teaching this semester? Uh, I'm teaching the same class I taught last semester, which is a rhetoric and writing class. Okay. And uh, this class is different because we are teaching rhetoric and writing using the controversy model. So the department selects a an annual model or annual controversy field, and then the students have to choose a local controversial topic to research and discover the various um, opinions and viewpoints circulating on that topic. And then they write a proposal for how to resolve this controversy, which is has proven to be a challenging way of teaching everything. <laughs> but I do think that it is valuable, if for no other reason, then it really does everything that it can from a curricular standpoint to get students to be more civically engaged, which I think is a good idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that sounds fantastic. So what's the controversy? So they have to work in the arena of food and health on the college campus. Hmm. Um, so they are able to pick any topic related to food and or health um, happening on any Texas college campus. Cool. Which okay. is a lot of colleges, in case y'all out there in the world don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Uh, next on our gossip, uh, STA, that's the Shakespeare Theater Association, did its thing in Prague a few weeks ago. I guess it was cool. I don't know. I wasn't invited. Mm. We're too poor to go to Prague. Yep. But apparently everybody who went had a really good time. Eric Rasmussen uh, was there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some very awesome people were there. Um, I just saw, I ran into Ralph Allen Cohen a couple days ago and he just came back. He was there and he came back from that and he said it was intellectually really cool. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Such a Ralph thing to say. They're oh, <laughs> like, oh really Ralph, can you expound on that? And not really because we were in the middle of observing a rehearsal so he couldn't, sure. but it was apparently intellectually <laughs> really cool. Also, it was in Prague. Uh, wish we could have been there. Moving on. Yeah. So also this weekend or this past week, some number of recent days ago in Arizona, it was the race before race conference, um, which oh, 
fuck me sounded cool and I wanted to it be did. there. It did. Everybody was tweeting about it. Oh my God. Like the lineup was fucking great. Iona Thompson and Kim Hall and Joyce McDonald and Arthur Little and Jonathan Shue and like everybody who is anybody right now in early modern race studies was there. Um, and the conversations coming out of that I don't know, conference, symposium, gathering, uh, are, I think, super important and you know, formative. They're field-changing is, is what they are, frankly. A significant amount of my dissertation is taking up questions of race. Um, so it was generative for me just from a research standpoint. But more importantly, it's, I don't know, they're productive conversations in a time that is 2019 <laughs> and uh, in a field that is frankly hostile and resistant to diversification. So I don't know. Were you guys following these tweets at all? Did you see them? A, a little, a little. I didn't exactly know what it was. So I just saw that a bunch of really smart people that I follow were very excited mm -hmm. about some stuff. Yeah, I was trying my best to follow. Um, and this perhaps is the mark that it was a really great conference. There was very little live tweeting. Yeah. It was a fully immersed conference experience, it seems like, for the people who were in attendance. But it is good to hear that there are scholars who are critical both of the concept of race not existing before some arbitrary time in the not too distant past yeah. and also who are addressing the ways of that the academy by virtue of its very long history of being predominantly white has not always integrated and listened to uh, the voices of scholars and students of color and proposing so, ways of how to address that yes actionable steps which i, I love so is see. that is that what the hashtag goes back to i'm sorry i'm super yeah, yeah. disconnected race so, before race like yeah. what does that refer to the, so that's that was the the conference symposium gathering and that was their hashtag sure. so if you want to check it out on twitter it's race the letter b the number four and then race so hashtag race before race there's going to be a, a second convening of it a, a slightly i think different iteration in dc in September, if I'm remembering that correctly. I think the Folger's going to host. Um, no, I mean, um, what does race before race refer to? Oh, I'm so, sorry. Uh, I, I get it that it's a hashtag, sorry. but like, why I, was yeah, the conference called that? The question. Um, so like Patrick was just saying, it's, it's this sort of conception that race didn't exist before like a hundred years ago. That's a concept. That's a commonly held conception in the Academy. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't yeah. know that. And in this field, particularly, like... This field being English literature, being the humanities, being... Early modern studies, uh, okay. medieval studies, the time okay. periods that I know about. I'm sure it's prevalent elsewhere as well. But Anything yeah. to do with the slightly more distant past? Sorry, I'm not meaning to quiz you. I just feel like I'm speaking for everyone who is as in the dark as I am. <laughs> it's not entirely my field, obviously, and clearly I am white... <laughs> So it's not, what? I know, shocker, <laughs> so weird. <laughs> um, so it's not for me, but it's also not not for me, 
right? Like mm-hmm. the the work that they're doing, I think, is really important for everyone. But particularly, um, they are sort of striking back at the white academy, who, um, you know, I saw a lot a lot of the tweets coming out of this week were saying, you know, we need to challenge white guilt and white privilege and teachers who are white dealing with these subjects, especially like Othello, right, which we teach all the time and we get uncomfortable teaching it all the time because it's a play about race, but is it a play about race? But like that kind of thing. Um, So a lot of it was like, hey, white people be better and here are ways to be better and here are some action steps to be better. And also people who aren't white, this is not your job to hold the hands of white people and make them be better. Like white people, that's your job. Um, which I, I think is good. There were some really great tweets about the race before race presentations, um, especially the ones that were dealing with whiteness as a, a place for productive critique about race. So including whiteness in race studies and not making critical race studies somehow simultaneously just minority studies, mm-hmm. but making all races, races, not racists, um, equally open to critique so that whiteness does not become the yardstick against which we measure all other race um, and sort of eliminating that kind of privilege as well. Mm-hmm. Um, within pre-modern race studies. Okay. Yeah, it was fantastic, frankly. So yeah. get out on the tweeters and look it up and stay tuned for news of the the gathering in the fall in D.C. Yeah. Speaking of the tweeters, um, we had some really fun interactions with a listener this weekend. Uh, about Antony and Cleopatra, you can find it on our feed. Thanks for engaging. Yeah, we love we love hearing from everyone. Frankly, obviously, we love arguing about Shakespeare. It's literally what we do, yeah. kind of for a living. Um, so we're here for it. Uh, you know, if you have feelings yeah. about what we do and say on this podcast, get in touch, y'all. Yeah, and I don't know if we've been explicit enough about it, but like. Jess and I have our feelings about particular plays. They don't have to be your feelings about a play. And, like, we're not going to try and talk you out of liking a play if you like it. Mm -hmm. You can like it. Like, I love All's Well That Ends Well, and a bunch of people disagree with me, and it's fine. I'm one of those people. Jess thinks I'm wrong, and yet we're still friends. It's because our love conquers all. It does. (laughs) So, you know, thanks for reminding everybody about that. Hurly burly listeners, you can like a play and you you don't have to convince everyone else to like that play for you to like the play. And we're always willing okay. to be convinced, obviously. Like my favorite thing yeah. to do is to to have my mind changed, which it wasn't yet. Uh, but, you know, I'm always open to being convinced. So same. Yeah. Um, let's talk about right. some flaccid dicks. <laughs> that was for you, Patrick. <laughs> Uh, it's dick bracket time yeah (laughs) uh so last week um we asked you to choose between the cardinal and yamville who's a bigger dick um you guys are wrong because you picked the cardinal but actually yamville's a bigger dick but 
I'm not going to fight this one because I feel like I'm going to have to fight coming up. So I'm going to let it stand, but you're wrong. So I don't know. That's... I think the Cardinal is a pretty big dick. I mean, he is a big dick, but he's not a bigger dick than D'Anville from the Atheist Tragedy. So Well, that's just like your opinion. I know, man. man I know. But I have read <laughs> both of these plays and you have not. So sick burn. (laughs) Sick accurate burn. Take us take us into who it is this week. So I've been waiting for this particular matchup for weeks now because I'm so excited about it. Uh it is Barabbas, the Jew of Malta. You remember Barabbas? He's the guy who uh who murdered an entire convent of nuns just to get back at his daughter for taking up with the Gentiles. Among other things, he did other bad things too, but mostly like poisoning some porridge and murdering a whole bunch of nuns um, and his daughter versus Livia, that stone cold bitch from Women Beware Women who convinces her niece that her uncle is not her uncle so that they start fucking and then she arranges like the murder and death of everybody else. Like like eight people end up dead at her hands. Yes, because of her. In Act 5. Yeah. It's... Amazing. So they are murderous, murderous fuckers, these two. I can't wait to see what the people say. I know. Honestly, I can't choose. I for real can't choose. They're both so evil. Yeah. I mean. I love it. Patrick, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Because you know these Yeah, Patrick, you get to weigh in. Barabbas is clearly the biggest dick. (laughs) Clearly. He killed so many nuns. That's true. Also, I mean, the body count. His yeah. daughter's fiance, whom he liked for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just gotta kill everybody. Yep. So, yeah. He's definitely the biggest dick. But not because he's Jewish, y'all. He's just kind of evil. <laughs> oh, right. No. I mean, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I think Livia's the bigger dick. Um, he sounds awful. She's pretty terrible. She's, she's real bad. Like, the body count in Women Beware Women is, I believe, eight characters, seven of which are on stage in the last five minutes of the play. Like That's impressive. You know, Bianchio yeah. dies, I think, in Act 4 uh, because of Livia. But then everybody else dies in the mask at the end of Act 5 uh, because of Livia. And, like, Livia arranges the rape of Bianca. Like, she is the catalyst behind everything. And and the incest. Like, yeah. she arranges incest just for, you know, shits and giggles. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? I know, because she's like, oh, Why? my brother is sad, and what will make him happy is if he can fuck his niece, so let me lie to everyone that they're not actually related. That's yeah. weird and terrible. Yeah. It is um, weird terrible. But also, like... Barabbas buys a slave. <laughs> He does. True. Yeah. 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 No, you're. Yeah. Really you're bad. not wrong. That's really bad. Yep. Um. Like I said, this is the matchup to like at, so far to end all matchups. Well, this is the one I've been waiting for because of this because yeah. they're so awful. Yeah. Both of them. The next week's so is bad. gonna be hard. Also, I'm not gonna tell you what That's that is, true. but it's gonna be hard. Okay. Well, you'll get to vote on that soon. We are just to remind folks we are on a tiny bit of a delay. Uh, in terms of polling and voting, right? Because yeah, but just on results. Yeah. So like when right, they, just on results yeah, on the day that they hear this podcast, this poll will be up. Right, but then right because of our recording schedule, it'll be two weeks from the time they hear it until they get the results. 
Right. Right. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. So get out there and vote when you see that one, though. Oh, oh I'm so excited. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. And thank you to Patrick for returning to talk to us about time in. Thank you so, so, so much. Uh, you can find Patrick on Twitter at PatrickAaron89. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Love you. Lovely to see you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so tune in next week for Sir Thomas More 101 rounding out the January of shitty plays, which, yes, we know that this episode is technically airing in February, but we're recording it in January, so get off my nuts. And we will have another special guest expert then. Yeah. Patrick, do you have a, a quote from Timon that you that you want to take us out on? Yes. It's going to yeah. sound like it's from Star Trek, but it's actually from Timon of Athens. Excellent. <laughs> it is live long and loathed. Ah! That's so Whoa. good! That's way better than the Star Trek one. Yeah. Right on. That's such a good curse. I want to start saying that to people. Live long and loathed. Whamble it out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at Hurley Burley Shakes or at Hurley Burley Shake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see She's gonna love and do right by me Have a kid, have some family Gonna marry me, the first woman I see Because we were sitting at your kitchen table And sure. I was like, when are we gonna have Patrick back on the pod? And then we were like, we can have him for timing And I was like, cool, I'm gonna start that outline right now And then I started laughing Because I was like filling in the dp and i was like time in and then athens and then i shared it with both of you and you both laughed i okay if you say so <laughs> i hate you both <laughs> <laughs>